Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and include some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I am your host, Anna Garcia, and our cases this week, a waitress who saw something and she said something. She ended up saving a boy's life in the process, according to police. And after noticing that a boy was covered in suspicious scrapes and bruises, the waitress asked the boy if he needed help. She did this by holding up a sign that his parents didn't see. And when he nodded yes, she called 911. Now the boy's stepfather has been convicted of child abuse, and there are new details that have emerged about the kind of torture that that boy had endured. But first, when a relationship begins like this, a man's wife dies, so then he marries her adult daughter, you know that it's going to be tricky. And in this case, police say deadly. That woman, the former stepdaughter turned wife, is accused of stabbing to death her former stepfather turned husband. She claims that it was self-defense, but police say that she was unhappy. Prosecutors say that she delayed calling 911 by 11 hours because she was swiping through a dating app for matches. We are recording this on Thursday, June 16th of 2022. You all thought I thought I was going to say Wednesday, but no, we're doing it on Thursday. <laughs> we're switching it up. And our guest today is Luis Bolaños, who's got more than 30 years of law enforcement experience, uh, has worked in the DA's office, the homicide unit. He runs his own private investigation firm called Get Bit, does a lot of pro bono work, um, a lot of pro bono work, is a great friend of the show, personal friend of mine. Luis, we're so glad to have you. How are you? Hi, Anna. Doing well. So happy to be here again. I, I really enjoy going over these cases with you, as you know. And I had to be reminded myself this morning that it was truly Thursday. Um, right? I know. And in your honor, yes. look look what I have. I have Hey, I have nicely done. Yes. Nicely done. <laughs> you know, when Lewis gives you a birthday gift, no expense is spared. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Okay, let's get right to it, Lewis, because there's a lot going on here today. Our first case is out of Winter Park, Florida, where there is a murder trial currently going on. And this is the murder trial of Danielle Redlick. So um, Danielle actually took the stand this week in her defense, which, you know, is always a tricky proposition. And she cried on the stand saying, you know, she didn't mean to kill her husband. She really loved her husband, that it was self 
defense. We're talking about 48-year-old Danielle Redlick. She is charged with second-degree murder and tampering with evidence in the death of her husband, 65-year-old Michael Redlick. Michael was found dead on January 12, 2019, in the couple's million-dollar home there in Florida. So, Louis, just the beginnings of the relationship, we're going to get into the crime scene and everything, but everyone is like, wait a minute. So he married her mother. And then when the woman dies of cancer, he then marries the daughter. I mean, it caused all sorts of people in that family. Oh, I'm sure it did. Probably in most families, it would cause concern at the, at the slightest threshold. Uh, but, you know, in scope of the entire picture here of what ended up happening at the end, 14, 15 years later, uh, it, it is something that makes you go, hmm. But by mm-hmm. itself, it's probably happens more than we think. No oh boy. <laughs> oh, boy. I think you're right. So here's what prosecutors say. They say that Daniel Redlick stabbed Michael to death and then waited 11 hours to call for help. But honestly, I think that's that's a very damaging thing. Not that, you know, allegedly stabbing someone because she, you know, she says it was in self-defense. But but that goes to what kind of consideration you have towards the human being. But she has a story, though, when she gets oh, on the stand. She, she yes, has a story. We're, we're, we'll get to that. in. we're going to do this in chronological order because I think it always helps people figure out, hmm, well, why would he say that? Why would she say that? It, I, I think it helps put everything in context. It helps me, Anna. It helps you. Okay. <laughs> well, police say that she covered up some of the evidence, that she tried to clean up the scene. Um, she's also given different versions. Like there was one version when she called 911, uh, what she said. Then when police got there and they interrogated her a few times, she said something else. And then when she took the stand, the story changed yet once again. Do you see that a lot, Lewis, that the story changes or does the story, if it's true, usually stay the same? Well, the truth never changes. I mean, I think we can all agree to that. But uh, story number one, which came via the incredible 911 operator that kept her on the line and kept her talking about what had happened and got her thoughts off of possibly doing something more harmful to herself or to others and and was able to keep her uh, at the phone and possibly give a location of where she was to the responding officers. But that story number one is crucial in these things. Because I say it all the time, you hear this from me every case, this is about the timeline. It's all about the timeline. And with that story and the questions, the perfect questions are asked by the 911 operator, you locked her into something. Um, And that's something you don't usually get a, a, you get one bite of that apple, right? Because it's one of the few scenarios where you don't have to Mirandize a potential suspect. And she just kept saying, kept speaking, kept trying to minimize her involvement when in fact she was pretty much uh, locking herself into a story that was going to probably end up in a conviction at the end of this. Well, we'll see, right? Because the the trial is going on right now. So at the heart of her defense and at the heart of the story, even, well, not with the 911 operator, has always been that they were in an argument and that it was self-defense. However, she did tell the 911 operator initially she thought that her husband had died of a heart attack. Right, right. Right? Try, trying to minimize it, right? And, you know, I, she's blending what may be true with lies to make 
the story that she wants to fly. Um, but, you know, she knew she knew what happened. She's the only one of that house that was left that knew what actually happened. So she got able she was able to deliver whatever facts or as presented as facts that she wanted to. But again, that locked her in the heart mm-hmm. attack, distancing herself from what actually happened. Yeah. And then the 911 operator, you know, continuing to, to ask, like, well, when did the heart attack happen? And then finally she reveals again, this is all recorded. She says, Oh, yesterday. Oh, well, hold on a second. <laughs> if the heart attack happened yesterday, what are you doing calling me today? Right. And isn't it again, again incredible when she made that statement and responded to the 911 operator, how calm the 911 operator remained through this entire call? She didn't acknowledge that that was an issue other than questioning or confirming. Because if you go through the transcript and we both listened to the 911 call, the, uh, every time something incriminating is said, she, the operator gets her back on that topic and say that again. I want to make sure I heard this clear. And she said it again yesterday. And that leads to the obvious questions. Exactly. Exactly. And that's when um, she starts telling some very interesting stories, which, you know, when we do get to the part about what she said on the stand, there's a lot of what she's saying that could, that could be true. That could be true. Right. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the background here of these two that we've touched on. So Michael Redlick was a, an executive at the University of Central Florida. And previously he had worked as an executive or for the MBA. Now, Michael Okay, so here's where we have to figure out the whole family dynamics, and then I think we can move from there because this all will go full circle, I think. So um, here's what happened. Michael was married to Danielle's mother, Kathy. They married three months before she died of breast cancer. He says family members say she married him so she could have better health insurance. You know what? I know people who have done that. Or I know people who stay married because one person is terribly ill and they need to keep that health insurance. Okay. All right. Not bad. Here's the part that really baffles me, though. After Kathy dies, this woman, the mother, dies of breast cancer, Michael falls in love with Danielle, who is 20 years younger. Okay. (laughs) In fact, she's like 20 years old at the time. And... When the mother dies, Danielle had a younger sibling. So Michael had to raise a 15-year-old, 16-year-old sister at the time. So that to me is fascinating. Fascinating. Interesting. Yet. Right. Not the only time it it has happened. And look, he fell in love with her, but that was a two-way street. Yes. Yes. So she was 20. She was of age. She says before she was 21, they were already having an affair and that her family was very upset when she started dating, you know, the mother's widower. It's just, it's bizarre. And then the, you know, the big gap in age as well. So there's a lot going on there. But you know what? They were married for 17 years, like you said. So that says a lot. And they had two children. Michael and Danielle had two children, a 15-year-old girl and 11-year-old boy. And they were not, thank goodness, at the house at the time of this incident. The children did tell family members and also uh, members of the police department that the parents fought a lot. They had separated, gotten back together, separated. There was a lot of this going on. So, um, and, and once again, the parents, mom and dad, 
put their kids, their own kids, in this situation. Um, it's just it's just horrible. Again, once again, all I care about is the kids in this, right? Yeah. That the adults they they dug their own holes, um, but those poor kids, what they were subjected to in that household, and what they had to do later in police interviews and go through that 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 ugly path of Mm -hmm. the justice system when it comes to children. uh, Yeah, and they've essentially lost both parents because you have one parent that is dead and the other one that's, um, you know, being held uh, for trial. So it's, and honestly, there's a part of me that as a child, because, you know, children are always fascinated about, tell me again about who my grandma is and where I grew up. You know, kids love to hear these stories. Sure. I'd love to hear, you know, and see the org chart for this thing. Um, So, daddy was married to grandma. (laughs) Yeah. What do we do with this? Okay, but you know, to each their own. So let's, let's get back to this. Now, police say that Danielle had a history of excessive drinking and violent outbursts. Uh, which is um, some of this is documented not only by friends and family telling police this, but also with um, incidents involving police. So there is documentation about this. In fact, three years before Michael's murder, there were two police incidents involving Danielle. This would have been in 2016. On June 18th of that year, police on patrol say that they find Danielle and she's like being disorderly and belligerent towards others in a public space. So, okay. A little troubling. Okay. A little troubling, right? Right. You know, again, by itself, may not mean anything, but in the totality, things start to add up. And then a few months later, excuse me, on October 3rd, police say that Danielle filed a report against her husband claiming that he was abusive, but she refused to sign a sworn statement and then ran out of the police department. And so that's 2016, Lewis, uh, when I was emailing you last night. I said, I think this is going to be very interesting in the trial because remember, she's claiming self-defense here. And she says that Michael was abusive towards her on the stand. We'll get to that. She talks about years of abuse. Now, I think to myself, well, that's a convenient story unless, uh-huh, something is documented years earlier with the police. That's right. That's what right. What do you think about that? Uh, well, it's not the first time someone's tried to claim self-defense as a domestic a violent situation at home situation where somebody ended up a spouse ended up dead and been successful with it but her albatross that she created started with that 911 call that wasn't self-defense at first and she said something else mm-hmm. uh, that locked it in and later on as we move through this you'll see that the pathologist the autopsy backs up what she said during the 911 call not what she's claiming on the stand right now yeah that's true. That's true. Now, in 2018, uh, one year before Michael's murder, Daniel Redlick was arrested by the Seminole County Sheriff's Office for battery on an officer, resisting arrest, disorderly intoxication. And, um, you know, that causes all sorts of problems, doesn't it? Because she ends up getting charged. She has to be treated. And, you know, because the deputies say she became so violent, they had to restrain her. She even tried to bite a deputy. So this also is going to come into play with what happened that night that Michael um, was killed because she claims, and she said this early on, I think, Lewis, not just on the stand, but early on when she finally started um, 
you know, explaining the, oh yeah, I guess it wasn't a heart attack story. Um, when she got to that moment, she said that he was threatening her, that he would call police because, um, she was being abusive, but she was drinking. And as part of her probation, she's not supposed to be drinking. And later on, toxicology reports do reveal that she indeed, um, had, uh, a lot of alcohol in her body, according to police records. Yeah. Isn't that interesting on how the story changes once the evidence starts to come out? And, you know, she sat down with her defense attorney and said, this was not a heart attack, right? This was a stab wound to the shoulder that you tried to minimize that hit an artery enough for this man to bleed out. The evidence is not going to back up what you're trying to say. So she fudged it she, to, to meet her narrative. Now, Michael himself, apparently, in the history of this family, um, also called 911. This would have been in 2018, so again, a year before his murder, and called 911 to say that his wife's behavior um, was troubling, that he thought she was at risk of hurting herself and others and needed police intervention. When officers arrived, Michael told authorities that Danielle had been drinking, which led to a verbal argument before she eventually passed out. It's interesting that her main fear, her main concern was the fact that she was worried about her violation of probation she was on um, and that she might be violated, somehow have to go back to jail for that. Not the fact that she was the victim of something where she had to defend herself and kill her spouse. The violation of probation came to the forefront. That's all she was worried about, which is why she said she went and hid in the bathroom. Doesn't make any sense. Yes and no, I'm going to say. Um, I mean, I think it, depending on her level of intoxication as well, she right. she may or may not have known um, how badly she stabbed him. I think that that is possible. I think because uh, on the stand, she finally said she was acting in self-defense. That is the latest thing that she's saying. So if she stabbed him in self-defense, is it possible that she wasn't doing it to try to kill him? And yeah, then she hits this artery. And according to the ME's report, he would have bled out in five or six minutes. So even if she had called 911 immediately, immediately, it may not have saved his life. But that is not for her or anyone else to decide. No, no, no. no. But it's, it's that combined with the 11-hour gap and yeah. the things, the evidence that was collected and photographed and found by the responding detectives uh, that showed a major consciousness of guilt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So let's get to the scene of the crime and the day of the crime. So at 9.28 a.m. on January 12th of 2019, Danielle calls 911. And as we've said, she everything is recorded. She tells, she starts off with, there's been a tragedy at her home. Okay. <laughs> Distancing. <laughs> really? That's a tragedy. Okay. It is indeed. Those words are profound, Danielle. And that her husband was dead, he was stiff, and he may have had a heart attack. All right. Um, now, that, as we said, then she admits that he died the night before. She claims that she ran and hid in the bathroom because she was on probation, and he was threatening to call the cops. This is when things, this is her first version of events, which is interesting. According to Danielle's call, she heard him moaning outside the bathroom. And then she says she left to check on him. And noting, quote, he was out of it and extremely bloody. 
Yeah, she uses that term more that he was out of it than he was dead. When she's yes. referring that he's not conscious and not responding, she says he's out of it a couple of times, um, trying to distance herself. And look, yeah. like you said, it's possible, right? The coroner said that uh, with that type of stab wound, you could be conscious and actually mobile for five or six minutes. So it's possible he did come to the door. But it's I think possible. It, it's possible. But there would have been, I would think, a blood trail that, that backs that mm. up. Um, then um, yeah. she told a dispatcher that she performed mouth to mouth on Michael. Um, and then she said something about him throwing up. But what did they find at the scene? Uh, well, no vomit. And, no vomit. Or at the, or at the autopsy. Um, but yeah. Um, and that's Dispatcher Smith. I looked hard for a picture because I wanted to give her full credit for this, for the work she did on this. Um, but just Dispatcher, Dispatcher Smith may be the reason, if she gets convicted, that that happens. Um, but she, that's a huge piece of evidence that you can't get any other way except through the 911 call. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And what's also interesting, and this will come back again in the latest version of events, Danielle claimed that then she fell asleep due to the exhaustion, that she passed out, that that could explain like what the delay was. I don't know. She may have passed out. It's very possible she passed out. And, and maybe she grabbed the bleach and tried to wipe everything up and spread the blood everywhere uh, and while she was sleepwalking or something. She didn't know she did that. Um, yeah, a convenient res response again, but did she pass out no she was working hard and she was panicking and stressing because it was setting in what just happened and her future was literally flashing in front of her and they did find you know evidence of strong smell of bleach these circular clean spots you know that were still a little bloody bloody towels it was it was a mess it was a mess what police found in there and then at some point i think right before 911 or somewhere in there she tried to cut her wrists she said she looked up how to kill herself and that she was trying to kill herself and then her children's voices came to her and then she stopped yeah. Um, it, it would be interesting, and I'm sure they have the answer to this and will come up in the trial, but what time did she look that up on how to kill yourself? Was it after or before the 911 call? Oh, During yeah. the 11 hours. Oh, I believe it was right before the 911 call. Right she, before? Oh, yeah. She she allegedly called 911 after cutting her wrists. But I don't know when she yeah. looked it up, though. But, that part yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It would be, who knows? Um, do, do we cover, what do you think of the eggshells? I don't know. I don't understand the eggshells. Can yeah. you can you well, explain I, this? Because I didn't know what to make of it. My, I'll just tell you my first thought when I saw that. But when the detective writes in her arrest report on how she walks up to the scene, right? The scene's already secured. She's walking up to the driveway and she sees what looks like eggshells on his car, in his car, leading up to the house. And later in the autopsy, they found what looks like an uh, egg, egg on him. But on his car, which kind of, you know, eggs kind of something you throw at somebody in disrespect or in the middle of a heated battle. So something happened to those eggs where somebody launched them at him, covered him in his car, got on his clothes. So to me, that indicates there was some type of friction, altercation before that happened. And she might know something about how those eggs landed on him as it started to escalate. Well, she has said consistently once she finally got over the heart attack thing that they were in the middle of an argument. She has said that, that they were definitely in an argument. So I guess the eggs were part of it. Flying eggs. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't know what to make of them. Yeah. 
Okay, so detectives arrive shortly after that 911 call and they, you know, they say they find Danielle like completely disheveled, covered in blood. Her wrists were bandaged um, from those self-inflicted wounds. Um, The body of Michael Redlick is found shirtless on his back with clothing saturated, blood-soaked towels. And it's interesting that they found a shirt that matched, um, that had a knife, um, like cut through it uh, uh, on the shirt that matched what he would have been wearing. So why she took that off, it's, I, there are many versions. Again, that gets all fuzzy. When things don't even, when the lie doesn't even sound like anything plausible, I can't. (laughs) Yeah. And she, you know, she got herself so buried deep in her lies that it, it, you forget that uh, there's facts to back it up. Remember, she also said that he came to the bathroom door and when she was in there, he was mm-hmm. mobile. But mm-hmm. I know you've seen some of the pictures of the scene. And Oh, for heaven's uh, sakes, Lewis. Oh, of all, Lewis sends them to me. <laughs> Lewis! I warned you at the top first of the email, but was also, sorry about that, Anna. I gave you warning at the top, but this <laughs> oh is true God. crime, right? But We are not publishing was, these photos. No, we're not. No, we're not. But uh, he was, his arms were extended like this. How difficult would it be? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense that he would have walked up to the door, gone back to the hallway and fallen in that position and his arms extended. So my thought on that is that she put his arms in that position, posed him to a degree Mm -hmm. uh, because that's not a natural fall. No, that's not a natural fall. That's very unusual. Yeah. Did Has she ever addressed that part of it? I don't think so. No, but I'm sure it's going to come up during the trial. Right? Yep, that, yep. It speaks for itself. And it's always a controversial move. We discuss this a lot, especially with um, defense attorneys, about taking the stand. Because unless you have a really, really good answer for the holes or the inconsistencies, you're kind of opening yourself up to discussing even more than you than than has been presented because you're there and you're opening the door it's always a tricky situation always tricky yeah is she taking the stand oh yeah she took the stand this week that's what's so huge about this she is testifying she's testifying in her own defense that's how um i've been able to get uh i was reading some of the transcript of what she said and what she's saying now and that's why i said it's very interesting in comparison to what's going on yeah you're Um, right or what she said earlier you're right for a defense attorney to say we need you to take the stand especially her because i would think all odds are against her ever taking it it's a desperate move. Mm-hmm. Well, I did find some of what she said and shared to be very interesting. And I wonder, mm-hmm. and I wonder, because she went through a list of how long she had been abused by Michael. And the question would be, does that plant the seed of doubt? Could it have been self-defense, which of course may bring the charges down? She may she may end up being convicted. It's up to a jury. We don't know, but it may plant the seed of wow. Yeah, she certainly you know she lied then and she lied, but this part of the story makes sense. I don't know. I find that interesting. So um, police obtained search warrants for her cell phone and um, social media apps and all this other stuff. Here's where we get into um, some interesting stuff. Okay, so um, her phone had been cleared of text messages between her and Michael. They found that she had deleted them. During the 11 hours. During the 11 hours, yes. During the 11 hours between Michael's death 
and the call to 911, she deleted them. Uh, according to detectives, um, she did this again in that time frame. They were able to pinpoint that. Um, here's the other interesting thing. Police say, they say that they found on Danielle's phone and her dating app that she actually was on her dating app two hours before calling 911. What was Danielle doing checking her dating app? Mm. While Michael is dead somewhere in the house. Yeah. How, how about that? Again, by itself, but part of the big picture, she just keeps digging a hole deeper and deeper. She's going to have an answer on the stand, though, which I thought was very interesting. You know, like they say she was swiping, looking at dates and messages. She says now that she was actually deleting some messages from a man she was dating. Interesting. Covering up. Okay. So let's get to to Danielle on the stand this week. So um, she told the jury that she stabbed her husband in self-defense because he attempted to smother her to death. She said that he held her head and pinned it against the kitchen counter with his hand. And then he was gripping her nose and mouth with the other one. She said that she was only able to escape her husband's grip by stabbing him in the shoulder with a kitchen knife. Now, again, remember, first it was it was a heart attack. Oh, and at one point she did tell police or 911 that he stabbed himself, like pretending to do a motion. Yeah, the, the least likely. I would have stuck with heart attack on this one. Okay, now she's on the stand and she's crying and she says, I really did love my husband. She said she didn't realize that he was dead. She thought that he was playing dead. Sure, that, sure. Yeah, that one didn't help Danielle. Okay, now... Remember how we said earlier on she claimed to have passed out? Now she tells the jury that um, she was so upset that she wrapped herself around his body and fell asleep with him next to him in this bloody mess. Right. And that accounts for the passing out sleeping part. Yeah, and the blood all over her. Mm-hmm. You're not buying that one. No, no, I'm not. Hey, Anna, what do you yeah. think? Uh, <laughs> let's talk about this. The McDonald's trip. I don't know. That that falls into the eggshells for me. <laughs> yeah. It, it's interesting because it could be within that 11 hours, right? So they found a receipt in her property on her that somebody went to McDonald's at 2143 hours, which is 943 p.m. Um, the call. She had a, they, whoever it was bought a quarter pounder. Yes. Yes. Quarter pounder. And so it, it's within that time frame. It's close. Is it possible that after the altercation, homicide or not, justifiable or not, that she took a trip to McDonald's and ate? I think differently based on something that Danielle has said. Now, we know it's hard to figure out what the truth here is. But, okay, she claims she was eating her McDonald's quarter pounder and that he took it from her. He bit into it and then spit the hamburger in her face. And that that was the beginning of the end of their um, massive fight, which. And you know what? There's a little bit of that that makes kind of sense, doesn't it? Could be, but there would probably be evidence of that. I, I would think, but uh, who knows? But I'm, <laughs> she's it's so off track and some of her responses and her choices that night. 
it's you have to confirm or deny whether she went to McDonald's after. Right, yeah. and I'm sure surveillance and all of that would have figured yeah. it out. I, my yeah. my guess yeah. is. My guess is not because she would have had to have been so spotless and clean. She would have people would have noticed a bloody woman. I think with, but I could be wrong. Drive through, I, I don't know. But you know, they would track her, and there's surveillance, and there yeah. are ways to confirm, deny that. But I just found that interesting. Yeah, and I do. You know, I think within here are we have pepper, right? Peppered within here are some nuggets of potential truth. I don't know what it is. It's up to the jury to decide. Now, remember the deleted text messages. She admitted on the stand this week that she did do that. She said she also deleted messages from a man she had been dating. She claimed that she didn't use the dating app while she was next to her husband's body. Well, I don't know. I I tend to think the forensic science doesn't lie. So I think that's a tough one. Um, for her. Now she explained the relationship. And I think, again, this is when stuff gets very interesting for the jury. She goes on about, again, you know, her poor mom died three months of cancer after he died. So he was seen like a good guy trying to help her out. Um, And she really did have feelings for him. And they had a marriage for a long time and raised two kids. So um, when they married, uh, then they ended up moving um, to a great riverfront home uh, while he worked for the Memphis Grizzlies basketball team. And she says it was about this time in their marriage where he became abusive. And she said that the older he got, the worse it got. Wait a minute, this is getting interesting now. Then she said, you know, they had challenges in their sex life because he was so much older and he was having difficulty with it. So he started taking testosterone, mm. which made him more aggressive and violent. And she said that the two had both, both been unfaithful in their marriage and that they had tried a trial separation. She had even filed for divorce and then never went through with it. So this, this relationship you know, has been fizzling for a long time. Um, yeah, no, you're right. You're right. That, that can absolutely be part of her defense. And does it justify the ends? I, I will see. Um, I also found it very telling. Uh, she claims that while, uh, uh, during those 11 hours, her kids called, they were not there. They were the only two in the house when this whole incident happened. The kids were staying at a friend's house that night. The next morning they called and wanted to come home. And she said, now's not a good time. Don't come home. Um, again, uh, I, I don't know. The, the, what those kids gave up in the interviews uh, about the relationship between their mom and their dad, uh, it, it's a two-way street. And there was there was some uh, domestic going both ways, for sure. It, it definitely does appear that way, that there was domestic violence here, that it appears that the two of them... Um, were abusive toward each other and that the kids had witnessed this. And um, this is a horrible, horrible ending. So it's in the hands of the jury. It'll be very interesting to see what they decide. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That'll be interesting. Mm-hmm. Lewis, our next case is also out of Florida, but I have to tell you, this is a case. Um, this is a case that just really touched my heart because we reported on it here on the podcast last year when the parents were first arrested because it was 
It's just this incredible story of uh, another human being helping another human being. When you see something, you say something and you do something. This is a, a woman who was waitressing who noticed that the family she was serving, there was a little boy who looked like he had been beaten. And she she will explain how um, she asked him if he was okay. And then she calls 911. And it's just... It's it's an extraordinary story. I mean, it right. just it breaks your heart, but it gives you hope. Gives you, know? you hope because the right thing happens at the end. Yeah, it really does. So uh, the stepdad has just been convicted um, in an Orange County, Florida court. Timothy Wilson, who is 36 years old, has been found guilty of false imprisonment, child abuse, child neglect for all of the abuse that he he just unleashed on his 11-year-old stepson. Authorities were alerted to the abuse when a waitress called 911 secretly. You know, the whole thing was like, can the police get here before this family leaves? Okay, so the victim's stepfather, Timothy Wilson, and his mother, his biological mother, Kristen Swan, who's 32, and the boy's younger sibling, had recently moved to Florida from Alabama in May of 2020, and they were staying at a hotel nearby. New Year's Day. This is what's so incredible. It's New Year's Day, January 1st, 2021. Timothy Wilson and his family went to the Mrs. Potato Restaurant in Orlando. Family-owned restaurant here. So um, the woman who was the waitress that day, is actually a manager. And she got called in at the last minute to cover a shift because one of the waitresses called out, okay? So she wasn't even supposed to be there that day. You want to talk about divine intervention? Right. Because that's what this woman says, that God put her there, the universe put, whatever you believe. I don't believe in coincidences. No, and there <laughs> so, were a lot. Right? Right. Unbelievable. Mm. So... um, this worker who's, you know, she's the waitress that day. Flavian Carvalho. That is her name. Flavian Carvalho. She the noticed. Hero. Flavia, I, oh, the hero. The hero Not of this. Just the waitress, but she was a hero that day. Oh, she and she still is to this day. She's oh, like a, a community hero. I mm. mean, they're, the community loves her and understandably so, yeah. especially when you find out she's still in touch with that little boy. Love it. Yeah. What a good person. Yeah. So... Um, Flavian noticed that there was this 11 year old boy sitting a little bit off from the rest of the family at the dining room at that table in the restaurant. So she takes the order. She brings the food. The only one not eating is the boy and the food's been kind of pulled away from him. So Flavian is like, Oh, what's going on here? Right? She's a mom herself. Was it not good? Is there something wrong? Do I need to take it back to the kitchen? She asked Wilson, the stepdad, if everything was okay with the food. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, everything's fine. The boy is going to eat later. And she's like, oh, that's kind of weird. Very I mean, weird. That, that could mean one of two things. He doesn't feel well and doesn't want to eat, which is possible. Or, you know, he's had the living crap beaten out of him and doesn't feel well and can't eat. Right. And it very well could. But Flavian, our hero, she also read the body language in the room and her situational awareness kicked in. She paid attention. And that boy was also wearing a hoodie, glasses and a COVID mask. So it was very difficult to see what was going on. But she read the body language and the situation at that table. 
uh, and she was able still to see a scratch on the eye and also some injuries bruising on the arms. And on the temple, right off to the side, even though he had... What 11-year-old sits there with a hood on, a mask on, and sunglasses on? Okay, I get it, teenage angst, but... Could be, could could be, be. but when that little hair sticks out on the back of your neck, something's not right, um... Take 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 some action, and she oh, just I'll let you keep going. But it, I'm so happy this thing turned out like it did. Oh, I know she did. She really did save yeah. his life. She really yeah. did. So and at least we'll tell you she saved not just that kid's life, but possibly he had a sister with him. Oh, of course. This like, is a horrible both. situation. Yeah. I mean, there's like there was nothing right about this. Yeah, there was mm-hmm. nothing right about this. So she's trying to figure out how to get a message to the boy because she's worried. So you know, she handwrites a sign. And she's just amazing. She's asking him, you know, um, do you need help? Right? She's asking him, are you okay? Do you need help? She handwrites this. And she's like, backs up near the register. And she finds an angle where she can get to the boy's um, line of sight, but that the parents won't see. And then so she holds up the sign to him. He sees it. And when he nods that he needs help. That he's not okay. Wow. And wow. To, you're, you're, wow. He actually responds. He's looking for help and he actually sees it. Uh, I thought the uh, press conference was very revealing because he talked about more divine inter- intervention. Like you said, New Year's Day, that was the only table and the chair where that young boy, 11-year-old boy was sitting in where that sign interaction would have worked where he was sitting. No other position in that restaurant, a table or chair would have had that same view. So how did that happen? I don't know. It was the last table of the day. Yes. Right? Because it was so busy. They might have been busy with work and not be able to give that attention that, that it deserved. Um, right. But, if they had been so busy, wow. you know, they may have picked up on something, but it was it yeah. was like it was a perfect storm to make it possible. Yes. The perfect storm. The perfect storm for her. So she calls 911, and the fear was, please, God, don't let them leave before the police get here. And thank goodness the police took her seriously. Look, we talk about first about um, um, mandatory reporters, you know, who don't always do what they're supposed to. They're, you know, they work in schools and they're doctors and et cetera. You know, there's a list of people who are considered mandatory reporters. Waitresses are not on that list. But she, right. she just being a good person, and uh, and look, you know, through my entire law enforcement career, even up to today, I hear stories, and you you hear this also, everybody does, where I know I didn't know if I should call or not, you know, I didn't want to call because I didn't want to be wrong, and I, you know, I and I tell folks all the time, it's okay to be wrong, it's absolutely okay. Many times a day we respond to calls uh, that someone had a, a saw a suspicious person wasn't quite sure, so they decided not to make a call, and it turned out to be something. But it's okay to be wrong. Rather show up and have it be nothing than than the other side of it. And thank goodness she took the risk because she also went to her manager and discussed it with her, and the manager said, "Yeah, let's call." So it, it, it's okay to call and have it turn out that there's a, a very reasonable explanation for everything that she was concerned about. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, Louis, no when I first moved to Los Angeles, and I remember we were unpacking in this house, and all of a sudden I hear what I think is a scream. Mm. <laughs> and I'm like, 
oh my God, I have to call the police. What if that, if the person needs help? So I call the police and I've just moved in and I'm like, and they, the patrol car arrives and, and I'm, you know, I'm unpacking and I'm, I'm trying to explain to them what I heard. And they're, they're very, very nice. They're like, where did the come from? And I'm like pointed out toward the canyon. Um, and they said, have you ever heard um, a coyote at night? I'm like, no, I just moved here. <laughs> no, <Those> why? Coyotes. <laughs> and they're yes. like, we, you know, if you hear it again, call us back. But we, welcome to the, the police were so funny, the LAPD. Welcome to the neighborhood. But we think maybe that was a coyote. <laughs> Probably not the first one to call them with that, for that sound. But And wow. I know, and I was really wow. embarrassed. But I said to the officers very clearly, I said, you know what? I'm a news reporter. And if God forbid someone was calling for help and I heard it and didn't do anything, I couldn't live with myself. Yeah. yeah. But, and, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that many people have gone through that, made that call. Turn out, turns out to be nothing, justifiable reason for why why they were concerned. But don't let that affect the next time you hear something, right? And that little hair on the back of your neck goes up. Still make that call. It's okay to be wrong. So you did nothing wrong with that. It, it Rather, that's what they're there for, right? It's, yeah, it's an it. embarrassing story I generally don't tell. But anyway, back to this, because it's about, you're right, you're encouraging people, for anyone listening or watching, it is important. You know, if, if your intentions are good and honest, then why not call the authorities? You have nothing to lose. Or you could save a life. So the authorities do arrive and they conduct a private interview, you know, and figure what's going on. And Timothy Wilson's arrested. It doesn't take long for the police to look at this little boy. Yeah. Yeah. So the the boy is taken to the local hospital. Oh, my God, Lewis. He had a broken arm. Black eye. And he was 20 pounds underweight for his age. His younger sister appeared to be unhurt. After Wilson's arrest, that would be the stepfather. The victim's mother attempted to take the boy and his younger sibling home. And then police were like, hold on a second. She, wait a minute, what's going on here? Because if she didn't intervene, then maybe she's complicit. So the mother is later... The mother, the biological mother, is later arrested on charges of aggravated child abuse and failure to report child abuse. This woman needs to learn from the waitress. Yeah, she does. Um, the children have been placed in protective custody. Um, Lewis, you mentioned this news conference. It's a great news conference that's been posted by WESH TV. Um, if you have time, look at the whole thing, because I always love to watch everything raw, unedited, and just make decisions for myself. But in this clip that we're going to play for you, you're going to hear a little bit about how the police are explaining how seriously they believe that this boy's life was saved. Um, and then you'll also also hear from um, Flavian as well. To be honest, the what this child had gone through, like I said, was just it was torture. There's there's no there's no justification for it in any realm of the world. I'm I'm a mother and I seeing what that 11 year old had to go through is just it it shocks your soul. Um, so I truly believe and I want to say thank you. Um, if Miss Carvalho would not have said something when she saw it, um, that little boy would probably not be with us much, much longer. 
So thank you, ma'am. So I wrote a sign asking him if he was okay. And he nodded, no. But I knew it that he is afraid or he's not comfortable saying that he needs help. Couple minutes uh, later, I wrote another sign asking him if he needs help. And this is when he nodded yes and make a movement with his hand like his, like that, showing that he didn't know what to do. And was when I called 911, and a couple minutes later, the police came in and took over the situation in an amazing way. That all, and thanks God, the boy is safe now. So now you've heard just how serious the situation was, but we're going to get into a little bit of the details so you can fully understand the value of this woman's actions on this day. Search warrant was executed, and the victim, remember we told you they were living in a hotel? Apparently, the little boy was kept in a separate hotel room that was used for storage. It's unclear to me how they had access to this or what kind of deal was going on that this was even permitted. Did the hotel staff know this? The peephole to the room was duct taped and he was kept in there away from his entire family by himself in this room. But it's worse than that. Authorities say that the boy was deprived of food and beverages that he was made to do military-style exercises, that they hung him upside down from a door by his neck and feet, and they handcuffed him to a dolly, a cart, a dolly. On Christmas Day, they found weapons they believe were used to beat him, a bent metal pole, a wooden broom. They found the handcuffs and the straps that they used um, to bind him. Unbelievable. I'm sick to my stomach. Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt he would not have survived if there wasn't an intervention. Oh my, oh, you know, and what this brings up is, who else knew? Obviously the mother did, but what about other people? What about other people? You know, this little boy just intersects with this woman's life for a brief moment in, his, in the entirety of his life and her life, this brief intersection. And as a result of it, she takes action. But he'd been living there since May of 2020, okay? You're gonna tell me that hotel staff didn't notice what was wrong with him? That others didn't see this? Right. Other waitresses, other people at 7-Elevens or whatever. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. No, it takes a special person <laughs> to make that call and, and, and go with your gut instinct. I, I mean, that's why I can't give this this gal, this hero, enough credit. Um, 20 pounds emaciated, at least, this young man, this 11-year-old boy. Um, that's going to stick out. I, I mean, and they, it looks like they were working hard, the parents, to cover it up Ugh. in public. So and there's always that. But yeah, I, I agree with you. Somewhere along the line, somebody saw something and didn't say something. Mm-hmm. 
So prosecutors say that um, the mother and stepfather were making calls to each other in jail to try and come up with a defense. Yeah, let me tell you, there is no defense. Um, And that the stepdad said to the mother that he had a great defense and that he told her not to take a plea for fear it would harm his case. Oh, oh, who does Mr. Wilson care about most in his life? Himself. Isn't that obvious? So uh, Wilson told the victim's step, uh, the victim's mother that he and they together could convince the jury that the boy had a history of telling lies. See, his body, his bruises, his broken arm, his black eye. Yeah, they're not lying. Yeah, they're not. He doesn't have to say a word. Right. In fact, he didn't. He just shook his head and said, Is "Yes, I need help." He's, right. He, he motioned enough. Right. So obviously, oh, it's also interesting that. Excuse me. The boy's younger sister was able to corroborate in her interviews with uh, Child Protective Services about the kind of abuse her brother was getting. Like we needed her, you know, to corroborate this. But again, once again, it's just more against them. Well, thank goodness um, they're they're all in Child Protective Services. We hope that they're in a much better place. What I think it's so amazing is that. Um, Flavian not only rescued this boy, she testified on his behalf on this trial, in this trial, and she's still close with him. Yeah. Little guardian angel. If you haven't seen it, you have to see the press conference, everyone. It is just wonderful. It'll make your weekend at the end, how this thing turns out. And watching Flavian's 18-year-old daughter sitting on stage with her, looking up at her mom as they're saying as she's explaining what happened and police chief is talking about what a hero she is and what this resulted in because of her, it, it just really heartwarming and, and points you in the right direction. It really does. You know, also there's a, a GoFundMe page where, you know, the restaurant said, Oh, we're getting so many calls ever since this happened here. We set up a fund. If you want to help her, she's received all sorts of um, commendations from the uh, local elected officials and the city and, you know, she continues to work there. And yeah, this is the Mrs. Potato Restaurant in Orlando. Mrs. Potato Florida. Restaurant. I love it. So Mrs. She, Potato. Mrs. Yeah. Potato to the rescue, okay? Yeah. 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 And it's just really, and, and the owner also said in that um, news conference, she talked about what it is. She said, you know, my restaurant, I, I try really hard to be a member of this community. And I think what you've seen today is we really believe that we are a part of this community and we are part of caring for this community. So yeah, I, I want to go to Mrs. Potato. Yeah, yeah if we're in that, absolutely in that area, Mrs. Potato for sure. Mrs. Potato I, for I, sure. I thought the owner was pretty phenomenal also in that uh, press conference. I thought so too, right? yeah. Very supportive yeah. of, her, of her employee and it, they were more than that. It was definitely a family in there. Yeah, they were wonderful. And, you know, again, and and they made a lot of comments about, you know, they're immigrants to this country and they've made, you know, a small business here and they're so supportive and um, how grateful they were to be in a country that responded when they called the police for something how like this. That, how bit. about that? How about that? Yeah. You know, I, I just want to add, I know you've covered this on this program and folks have seen it, but I think I, I, it's just a reminder, right? You, you see... The international distress signal for a child, for an adult, wherever situation. But if you cannot verbally share that you're in distress, you need help. Open hand, tuck your thumb and close it. I need help. That's a silent way of getting your message across. Just like this 11-year-old boy did simply by nodding his head. 
But I think this is something that could have also come into play. Um, but amazing. This is even needed, but it is. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Timothy Lee Wilson has been found guilty of four counts of aggravated child abuse, three counts of aggravated child abuse with a weapon, two counts of false imprisonment of a child under the age of 13, and one count of child neglect. He will face sentencing day on August 19th, 2022. That's this summer. I hope they throw the book at him. I hope he never gets out. And um, I wish him nothing but horrible things. I'm sorry, but that's how I feel. I really, I find him a disgusting, I can't even call him a human being. He's an animal. And that is a compliment. That's a compliment, calling him an animal. The mother, Kristen Swan, has pleaded not guilty on all charges. Her trial is set to begin on you know, in July next month. Good luck with that one, okay? Yeah, That's what I say. That Good luck. Fun. Good luck with that. Yeah. Now, Lewis, there's a crime story that um, you want to share with everyone. Yes, I, I think I just want to acknowledge it because uh, these are two officers in the city of El Monte, California, who two days ago were ambushed and murdered responding to a domestic violence call. This is Officer Corporal Michael Paredes and Officer Joseph Santana of the El Monte Police Department. And they were responding to what statistically has always been and will probably always be the most dangerous call a peace officer can respond to, a domestic violence call. And they were doing that to increase the safety of everybody within that house and their community. And for all of us who happen to be passing through their community, and they were ambushed and killed. They got in a shootout with the suspect, the monster, that I don't know what to say. But this is happening too much, and it's close to home to me. I know it's close to you. It's right in our area. Um, and by the luck of God, this could happen in our backyard at any second. And in my world, it has. Um, so I just want to acknowledge them, let them know that our thoughts and prayers and hopefully justice uh, is coming their way. I don't know what the answer is to prevent this, but I think we have to acknowledge it and address it. Um, and it, it has to stop. Yeah. And as we've seen oftentimes with these domestic violence cases, as we saw with our case at the very top of this episode, so many times, not always, but so many times, it ends in death. And um, even when there is police intervention, in this case, it's the police who get killed for intervening to try and save the victims. Yeah. It's horrific. It's just horrific, Lewis. And I know it, it hits you very, very hard because you wore a badge for a very long time. And I'm sure your entire family was always wondering, is Lewis coming home tonight? Yeah. 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 So thank you for letting me share that. Of course. Okay, this has been a very heavy episode, as it always is. So let's do a little transition here. Uh, we're going to talk about comments. These are the comments that you all are leaving on our social media pages. These are the crime stories that you all are talking about. Our producer, Will Updike, is here now. Okay, Will, what's everybody talking about? Hey, Anna. Great to see you, Lewis. Hi, Will. All right, so this one is a little bit ironic, a little bit of... Uh... I don't know, life imitating art, whatever you want to call it. But 
a, a Houston man who rapped about robbing ATMs was arrested with four other people for, get this, allegedly robbing a Nashville ATM. Um, so these four suspects were from uh, Texas, about the Houston area. But according to Nashville police on June 6th, Two of these four suspects robbed an ATM technician outside of a Bank of America in Nashville. They reportedly told the technician to not do anything stupid and to hand over the money. Now, what's kind of interesting is how these suspects were apprehended. Um, They were able to determine that one of the getaway cars was a Hyundai Elantra that was rented from Hertz. And then officers were able to use, uh, you know, like the aerial helicopters and everything to kind of track the movements. Um, And then they found that another uh, car that the suspects were using was a Jeep. Um, And they found the group at a motel uh, with the helicopter units and saw them moving this money from the Elantra into a Jeep. Uh, one of the four suspects, uh, Ladizion Riley, he's kind of interesting. Like I said, there's four of these suspects, but uh, he actually goes by the moniker. Uh, he's a rapper of 213 Jug God. That's Jug with two Gs. Uh, and he made a song called Make It Home about jugging, which I had to look this up. I'm sorry, I'm not very hip. It means robbing things. Um, so this entire song is about robbing ATMs at a state. Um, and right now the FBI, the FBI is further investigating the matter. And this entire group will be facing federal charges, according to law enforcement officials. Now, everybody, you know, kind of had a field day with this one, uh, especially with the suspect kind of, you know, maybe giving away a few too many details in their music before going ahead and committing the crime. Um, so even the Houston Police Officers Union jumped in, as I said, all these suspects were from sort of the the Houston area. Uh, But they said, irony, when you make a song called Make It Home about bank jugging and hitting ATMs out of state and then don't make it home, which I honestly like if you're going to I think you can't have both things. You know, you got to do one and just kind of have it be, you know, something that's more of a story uh, or do the other thing and and maybe keep it quiet. Um, You think that's the life lesson there, Will? (laughs) I think that that might be the life lesson. You can't um, have the proverbial wrap cake and eat it, too. Um, But we got some comments about this song. Obviously, Make It Home, uh, you know, this two and three jug song, God, uh, God song has been getting a lot more views because this is kind of like picking up as a story. Uh, But James G said, man, this is so good. It makes me want to go rob an ATM, tell everyone I'm doing it and get caught on my way home. So inspirational, Um, which it it didn't quite do that for me, but uh, it's a little catchy. It's a little catchy. Uh, Scarlett S said, I guess he rapped about it so that when he got caught, he could have said, they're shooting a music video for his song. Yes. Which I, I don't know if this defense was ever explored, but man, that probably would have That's been a good one. You, that would have been probably your easiest way out. Uh, a lot of people were, you know, just interested in, in this had the detail that he went into in some of these songs. Jay said, when we wanted rap music to return to being about real things, this is not what we meant. Couldn't agree more, Jay. Uh, yeah, we we don't we don't need you to be doing these things in real life. Um, and Ghost User was actually uh, more <laughs> impressed with the ATM. They said, legend has it, this man held a gun to the ATM for three whole hours and it still didn't give up the money. So <laughs> ATM's given up a few less details than uh, the old Jug God in this one. Uh, but that is going to do it for this week's comments. You didn't include my comment. I had one on Twitter. 
What do you got, Anna? I said this was a great example of setting intentions and mindfulness. Oh, oh! I took Dr. that. Doctor Judy route. would be very proud. Or I know, not proud. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is our episode for this week. It's been quite an episode, Lewis. It's always such a pleasure having you on. Of course, you know I'm selfish about it because I get time with you. <laughs> so, what are you up to, and where can people find you? Oh, we're up to a few things, aren't uh, we? we? Yes, we are. Um, mm. In the crime world, there's never a shortage, unfortunately. But mm-hmm. uh, my entire social media footprint, you can be found at getbitinvestigations.com. And uh, stay tuned. Much more coming up. Hopefully. Oh, yes. Yes. Lewis and I are up to no good. Some good, but it's no good. <laughs> Hopefully, it's, it's good. It's good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you can find me at Anna G News. Um, that's Anna with one N. Occasionally, occasionally I'll have, you know, a little post about crime. But for the most part, like I avoid crime. It's just like it's too depressing. <laughs> As I say to the people who listen to the podcast, hey, I have to cleanse my soul every day after doing this podcast. So um, you, of course, can get all of our podcasts, including the My Favorite Case series, which is a personal favorite of mine. Wherever you get your podcasts, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, True Crime Daily, keeping the name simple. You can receive our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Until next week, as we always say, don't do crime. 